but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I'm recording this from Puerto Escondido, shortly before heading into a 20-day silent meditation retreat that will include 10 days in complete darkness. So I'm pretty sure that I'll have some interesting stories to report when I emerge from that at the end of this year. But for now, I'm really excited to share this conversation with Arthur Worsley. And Arthur's a good friend of mine that I met in Bali, where over many dinners together, he really helped educate me in some of the tactics for learning Bahasa and just opened my eyes to this world of meta-learning that he's specialized in. Arthur studied neurophysiology at Oxford back in the UK. Um, he's since become conversationally fluent in eight languages and he applies these learning superpowers to things like ultramarathon running and collects wisdom from all kinds of books. In this conversation, we dive into the, the simultaneous devastating personal loss and financial gain that he received nearly a decade ago and how that was a catalyst for reinventing himself. He walks me through how he thinks about procrastination and the four main causes of it, which I find super interesting, and his approach for cultivating and tracking what he calls mindful meta moments, as well as some thoughts on how his life might be altered by the child that he and his fiance are expecting. As always, you can find links to everything we mentioned in the show notes, and with that, I'm excited to give you this fast-paced and meandering conversation with my good friend, Arthur Worsley. So lovely to have you here, Arthur, for this, uh, this Curious Humans experiment. Um, I've been looking forward to this. How are you feeling in three words? Uh, excited. Uh, curious, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and happy, super happy to be chatting to you. I've missed you, um, Erin, and I have missed you out here in Bali. Um, it's, it's a poorer place without you, so um, <laughs> happy to be on the phone with you. Oh, I miss you guys too. Um, so as a as a jumping off point, I like to start these conversations with a question. Um, and the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, can you tell me something that you were exceptionally curious about? <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my mum always says that uh, the moment uh, I was born, I had these big blue eyes. If you see pictures of me as a baby, I look a bit like an alien. I just have these big, big eyes and that they were always open and always looking at everything um, and that I would literally never sleep. Uh, and then all I wanted to do was just look at everything around me. So as far as an anecdotal, uh, <laughs> an anecdotal uh, thing goes, I guess I was, oh, I I was curious from a young age. Um, what have I always been curious about? I mean, I've always, I was very lucky. I think uh, one of my favorite ideas from um, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, is that um, education, some of the most important education we have happens in between school terms. It's what our parents do uh, when we're not at school. Mm. And I was very lucky because my mom always used to take me to amazing things, to uh, to the theater, to museums. Obviously, London, we have some amazing museums. And so I was always curious about everything which I studied when I grew up because my mom had this amazing way of bringing it to life. So when we studied Egyptians at school, I would go and you know see all the mummies in real life and things. 
Um, wow. But I guess if you had to pick one thing that's driven me later on, it's it's curiosity about how we think and how people think and how we make decisions, um, you know, what it is that drives us. Um, and that really is, you know, with hindsight is what gave birth to the art of living in the first place. And I know you have mm. a, a similar curiosity with curious humans. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Do you um did you have any favorite books or stories growing up that came to mind? Maybe something about Egyptian gods or were there any kind of or perhaps movies as well that really stuck with you? I was a I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, so I think I first read The Hobbit when I was six. Um, you know, there was that thing where everyone's learning to read and they give you those awful color coded books where you work your way up the color coding. And I did a similar thing when I learned piano. Um, I just picked the hardest piece I possibly could. And I was like, I'm just going to learn this one. And my piano teacher laughed at me. So the first, but then uh, a month later I came back, she was like, I can't believe you learned this. And I was, it's so much more important to learn with something that you're passionate about than mm. necessarily to, uh, to just, you know, go up the grade. So I read the Hobbit when I was six and I was absolutely enthralled. I think it created a mm. lifelong life love of of uh, fantasy literature of uh creativity of all those worlds and i started writing poetry about uh, uh dragons and i wish i still had that poem but um but yeah so so uh, books would be lord of the rings and the hobbit were uh, the, i read the lord of the rings afterwards those are the two which really as a young kid i remember reading for the first time mm. Mm, wow i um i also read both but not when i was six i think it was much more in my later teenage years um, well, I think I think it's one of those books where I I probably could only access it at a very basic level. I think I was enthralled by the adventures, but obviously much yeah. of the subtext and things were probably just went straight over my head. But. Yeah, and I can still remember the on like one of the opening pages there were the, the maps of Middle Earth, and I remember ah. just kind of pouring over those like cr- created fantasy worlds. And it was the same for me for the Wizard of Earthsea as well, which is, was a, a similar kind of fantasy um, creation that I just which was that which in. one called the, the Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Um, it, it was ki- kind of like a, a Harry Potter before Harry Potter was, was written, I'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a fantastic series. Yeah. So you, um, I don't actually know that much about uh, your life pre-Bali. And I, I do know that you studied uh, brain chemistry and neuropharmacology at Oxford, along with uh, philosophy and, and psychology. And curious what that was like for you. Um, how, did you how did you find that experience? I think I think there are two. I had two experiences at university. The first was the academic one, which I probably, I looking back on it, I wish I participated more in. Um, I spent most of my time trying to make money and run businesses and do all the things which we were actually banned from doing. So I had bar jobs, and then I started. I had a monopoly on the student nightlife with a couple of friends. We mm. we had uh, we were running twelve club nights a week at one point um, uh, and running big events. Um, but then on the flip side, on the on the psychology side. What did I think of it? I thought that the topic, the subject matter was super, super interesting. I really, really enjoyed um, learning about the brain and and really unpicking how psychology bleeds into physiology. Mm. Um, I think I was kind of left a little bit disillusioned with universities as a whole. Mm-hmm. I remember having a conversation with one of my tutors um, and they were working on a particular psychological problem. And I'd had a conversation earlier in the week with another person in the same corridor who was working on a problem. And as someone who stood outside of the problems, I was like, isn't it obvious that your two ideas could combine together and create something amazing, you know, create something Mm. special. And in my head, I was like, wow, like both of you attacking this problem, the same problem in two different ways. But, But it made me realize that 
they didn't want to work together because that's not how funding works at universities right. and things like that. And so I think it was perhaps one of my, it's one of the things I really remember taking away was this idea of, um, of how the incentives at universities actually sometimes pre prevent the best mm. people from creating together academically. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. I, I had a similar reflection myself from doing, uh, I studied psychology, philosophy, and economics. And oh, for yeah. me, what was interesting was the almost like um, the lack of overlap between all three of them and, and how they all seem to be siloed. And the, the economics department had very little understanding of philosophy or even basic human psychology. And mm. likewise, the philosophy felt very abstract, and not particularly rooted in um, you know practical ways of um, it, be, it being being applied, and so I feel like the the the, the, um, the modern world is is just less siloed than we pretend it is at, in university when we kind of study these subjects, and the same is true in, in academia as well, I presume. Absolutely, and it's when you see. So they say that you know true creativity happens when you combine two slightly you know mundane things together in a new way. And you saw the mm. whole field of behavioral economics arising. You know all the Completely. decision biases. Completely. You know everything yeah. like nudge theory, all that stuff came when you actually had economists who wanted to understand psychology instead of economists doing a sort of more uh, Aristotle Platonic view of you know economics as this ideal when they actually got nitty gritty and talked to the psychologists about how people make decisions suddenly you had this incredible field open up mm. so yeah I think it's a it's a shame that happens I do like the U.S. Um, system I studied in the U.K. which is much more monodisciplinary you know you study one subject whereas I love in the U.S. that you have multiple majors that you can study a little bit of everything and therefore come up with these synthesized views across multiple topics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I guess fast forwarding slightly, I was, I was going through a lot of your, your blog posts this morning preparing this conversation. And in the, I think it's in, in the about page, you kind of mentioned this, this existential crisis that you had whilst uh, consulting at McKinsey, which also coincided with some pretty devastating personal losses. And so I was wondering if, if you're open to sharing what happened here um, and kind of what it led to, because it, it sounds like that experience was this this inciting incident for the next chapter of your life in many ways. Yeah, for sure. I think um, so. Uh, basically, I there's a moment I think in a lot of people's lives where they they get kicked out of the matrix. Um, a, a wise friend of mine once said that in order to have real insight, you either have to gain everything or lose everything. Mm. Um, and this was one of those weird situations where it kind mm. of felt a little bit like both. So um, I'd sort of joined McKinsey. I'd been absolutely loving it. I was um, studying. Uh, I was. I enjoyed McKinsey because I was learning all the time. And just as all of this was coming to a head, the sort of learning curve was dipping a little bit. I was having to specialize a bit more. It was a little bit less interesting. I was on this crazy project where one of the partners gave himself viral meningitis because he was working so hard and mm. so things were tough at work and then personally things were very very um, hard with my father's alcoholism um, sort of coming to a head and he'd he was becoming he was having increasing problems with dementia we had uh, unknown drunks turning up at the house money was going missing um, my mom was about to have a nervous breakdown it was um, pretty hectic wow. on that end and then at the same time my uh, relationship of four years was imploding probably not aided by the state I was in because of everything else going on yeah, um, wow. and I think that was like uh, and, and the I guess that was losing a lot of things and then on the gaining so I was at a point where I was like okay I think breakups can actually be amazing because they give you an opportunity to totally reinvent yourself um, mm -hmm. and so a job changes there are a few things that go on but the um, with the death of my uh, grandfather 
um, just recently. And then with my, and my father's still alive, but he effectively um, has passed on. He's not the man that he was. Um, there was an inheritance that jumped a couple of generations and I effectively ended up inheriting my financial freedom uh, about 40 years earlier than I expected. So on top of, uh, on top of the sort of career thinking that I was doing, I was suddenly faced with this prospect of, well, what if the, what you were planning to work towards for the next 40 years is no longer mm. something exciting for you? What do you do now? Um, mm. And I had this sort of, suddenly I was like, wow, I, I basically had the midlife crisis age 25, where I was like, well, what do I do with my life? You know, what, what do I do mm. with that thought experiment? What do you do if you never have to work again? Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow. And h- how did you begin to approach that question like what what did your thought process and your and your kind of experiments look like i mean the first thing i did was run away (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know it was a lot to take in i mean i i couldn't run away for a long time there was no way i you know we had to resolve we ended up uh putting Mm -hmm. my father in a home i um i quit my job at mckinsey i wound down my previous relationship um you know there was a lot of loose ends that had to close and then i kind of just got away um from all of it um, and the first thing I did, I remember I was actually in Guatemala, um, sitting on a uh, surf beach and, uh, we were in this surf hostel and I was supposed to be learning how to surf, but the waves were eight foot high. And the only boards that the surf hostel had were these broken foam boards. So I went out a few times and nearly drowned and decided that probably wasn't the best thing for me to be spending my time doing. So that was day three of a month long, uh, attempt to learn to surf. So I ended up spending almost the whole time sat at a table with a, uh, piece of paper or lots of paper and a pen. Mm. And I just remember just, it's where I really discovered the power of journaling. And it started out with me just getting out of my head, all of these things that mm. I've been bottling up, just writing them down, you know, destroying the paper afterwards, I think is super important part of journaling because it means you don't, yeah. um, you don't, uh, since you don't uh, censor yourself or anything. And so I was just getting, and then as I started to do that, I started to ask myself questions about what I wanted out of life. And I, I would write down what I thought that I wanted out of life. And I would look at it and I'd be like, why do I even want this? And I suddenly realized that there were all of these things that I thought I wanted that I'd never Mm. actually decided for myself. They were just things that I'd taken for granted, you know, paths that I thought I should take. And so I started thinking about things like, you know, what would I do if I never had to work again? Why do I even want money? What do I want children? What do I want out of a relationship? You know, and and the more of these that I busted, the more I realized how much of my life was built on stilts that I'd never created for myself. I think that was the initial sort of um, catalyst that then then made me realize how little I actually knew about myself and how little I knew about what I wanted. Mm. Wow. Wow. That, 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 that um, line from your friend that uh, the idea of, of kind of gaining everything or losing everything being a catalyst for um, like real growth, that, that really resonates with me. And I've, I've spoken to a few founders myself who um, they, they kind of achieve their dreams in terms of creating the business that they then sell. And when they sell, in, instead of it being this profoundly happy experience within a few a few weeks or sometimes even a few days there is this sense of like being plunged into this void that they have achieved yeah. what it is that they thought they wanted but it didn't bring them the sense of like deep fulfillment and satisfaction that they had imagined and yeah. so in, in some ways it sounds like you were wrestling with some of those questions not having to um worry about you know earning earning a living for that period of your life were, were, were there any kind of insights that you came to out in guatemala or in the in the years that followed that kind of set the stage for what you're, what you're doing now? 
Yeah, I think I spent, um, so, so I, I resonate a lot with that feeling. And, and I think the, the interesting thing though, is that for a lot of people, they already have that feeling. It doesn't take having millions of dollars in the bank account to get there. You know, we live in a world where, um, where you don't need a huge amount of money. And I say this sensitively because there are obviously a huge number of people in the world who are still not in this place or anywhere near it. But for mm. for the for countries like the US and the UK, where you live in, uh, especially for example, the UK, where you have healthcare provided for you, where you have housing provided for you, where you, you know, you, you actually need a a relatively low income in order to not need anything anymore. You know, you might sure. want more things, but you don't need anything. And so many people without even realizing it have already reached this state and this sense of like emptiness that they feel inside them, this need to buy things or to go out and drink things or whatever to numb this kind of feeling they have mm. comes from this, like they're still pursuing goals that actually don't mean anything to them more than anymore. They are effectively right. retired. You know, they've hit those goals. So, anyway, so I, I, I basically, I, I, when you have that from a full side of the um, equation, um, you obviously have to go through that process. And I went through that process that a lot of people, most people don't go through until they're in their sort of mid forties or early fifties where they reach a similar state mm. financially and, and like your entrepreneurs. Um, and yeah, I, I basically had to work it out for myself. I was lucky that I had a, a pretty strong productivity system, um, you know, from working at McKinsey and all the work that I'd done before. I was fairly effective. I was fairly efficient. I suddenly realized that I wasn't very effective. When someone didn't give me a goal or the goal wasn't provided for me, I had no way of creating that goal for myself. And so I spent the next few years, I actually spent three years traveling and I did several things. I learned languages. I traveled to lots of countries. I took in a lot of new information, but at the same time, I was kind of working out how do I, you know, in a world where I'm, I'm not a religious person and therefore, you know, religion is, is in many ways fantastic. It's a just add belief form of, you know, it gives you a meaning of life. It gives you examples to follow. It gives you an ethical code, um, you know, in the absence of anything else, but how do you create your own goals in the absence of a religious belief? Um, and so that's what I basically started creating for myself was what eventually became uh, what I teach as traction on the art of living um, is this idea of how do you create balance and uh, uh, how do you become productive and find balance and find meaning and have all of those things linked together in a way that you can just do on a sort of day to day basis. Um, that's very, very simple. Mm. Mm. There's so much I want to dig into there. Um... Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Big topic. So let's. Um... Let's, it's, it's, it sounds like we both kind of share this frustration that society or at least the education system that we were put through uh, and schooling left us both woefully unequipped for essentially living well. Um, yeah. And so th this is a pretty broad question. And, and I know it's more or less your full-time focus right now at, at The Art of Living, but what would you say would be some of these, these human skills that you've learned over the last few years that you wish you'd known about earlier or or to, to maybe frame it another way, if if you were to help me design a how to human curriculum, what might you think about what 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 skills might you think about teaching, and how might you structure that curriculum? Ah, uh, I mean, this is a this is a little bit tricky because it's kind of like saying um, if you wanted to study physics, you know, where should you start? And the answer really uh, depends on where you're coming from. You know, if mm -hmm. I was designing designing, uh, designing a curriculum for someone who's totally new to all of this, we'd start at stuff like how to write to-do lists, 
um, you know, uh, setting a basic morning routine, tracking habits, um, you know, all of those things, which the entrepreneurs that you're talking about have probably got down, you know, how do you outsource stuff? How do you, I mean, that's even a little bit more advanced. You know, the first is like, are you drinking enough water? Are you sleeping enough? Are you getting enough exercise? You know, these basic fundamental things that you need in order to function, um, as effectively as possible and to be happy, right. To, or if anything, to create an absence of unhappiness. And then as you get slightly higher up, you start talking about things like, okay, well, uh, how do you create a productivity system? How do you get stuff out of your head? How do you uh, start setting goals on increasingly long timelines? And I think that's where um, there are basically, once you get to a basic level of competence, there are basically two uh, things that I would teach people, which I think they need to know in order to live well. The first is how to set goals and link those goals of increasingly long timelines. So different, I, I talk about it as vertical. So I have uh, horizons, for example, of daily, what are you going to do today? What are you going to achieve this week? Uh, what are your goals um, for the next year? What does awesome look like um, in whatever part of your life you're focusing on and what mission are you working towards? And how do you make those five layers all interact with each other? Because then everything you do every day has meaning because it links into something bigger, which links into something bigger, which links into something bigger. And then the second way is horizontally. So the second uh, curriculum, which uh, I teach in the way that I've broken the art of living up is into eight different areas of life. So those are uh, health and vitality, thoughts and emotions, family and friends, love and partnership, growth and learning, productivity and performance, uh, business and career and wealth and lifestyle. Um, and once, so everything that I've just described kind of fits within the productivity and performance. That's like stone one, like it's the the how of how you do the rest. And then, then you start going, okay, well, if I was going to design the syllabus, the first question I would ask is, which area of life is most holding you back? Where are you most struggling? And for some people, that will be uh, love and partnership. For some people, that will be health and vitality. And once I'd given people the basic toolkit, I would say, okay, well, now you have the basic tools to put what we're going to talk about into action. Let's talk about how do you master the basics of sleep or nutrition or exercise? Or how do you master, if you're in a relationship, how do you master communication skills or emotional intelligence or whatever it might be from then on? Mm. Mm. so there's a couple of things i want to jump on there um firstly i can imagine some listeners maybe having some uh pushback again with with the idea of combining productivity and, and achievement to areas like love and partnership or health and vitality and could you could you briefly make the case for why they are connected and why they shouldn't be seen as as distinct approaches uh that's a that's a hard question because I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to infer a lot from it by taking a position which I don't really know. I met people will have issues with it for many different reasons. Can you be a bit more specific about a specific complaint that you think people will make? Yeah. Um, so I think that people just have this this idea that applying a kind of productivity mindset to areas of life which aren't necessarily just about getting things done so so for me um may, maybe this is a slightly different example but I, I think of play play as being something that requires deliberately letting go of, of any kind of attachment onto an outcome and so I yeah. can imagine someone yeah. saying like I I really value play and, and maybe that comes yeah. into their partnership and their relationships um but I don't want to kind of have this this mindset that only allows me to focus on outcomes at the expense of actually dropping into a, a genuine sense of play. Yeah. 
So look, I think this is a, like a common misconception. Oh, I, it's not a common misconception. When you first start out teaching people productivity, it's very regimented because that's what you have to teach. You know, in the same way that when you first start teaching, uh, not to liken people to children, but when you first start teaching a child, you give them rules. You tell them what to do, right? As people get better and better, you stop telling them exactly what to do. You tell them more why to do things and you let them choose the what for themselves, right? And that's really the same difference between what the productivity that most people are used to is all about, like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. The productivity, when you get more and more competent, is less about giving people specific instructions of like, move to point A, move to point B, move to point C. It's more, if you imagine a football pitch, or a soccer pitch, right? People on the football and soccer pitch, they play, right? And they play beautifully. But what enables them to play is that it's the, the play is bounded by basic principles and rules that actually allow you to be more creative than if you just put a whole load of people on a pitch with, uh, with a ball and were like, play a game, it probably wouldn't be that fantastic. You know, people would argue about what the right way to do it is. So what uh, there would, you know, people would have to try and create the whole thing for themselves. They'd be so worried about what the rules of the game were and how to create it. They would never actually have any time for play itself. So, so fantastic productivity when you get more and more skilled at it is less about telling the players, Hey, you move, you run down this wing. Now you do this. It's more about creating the bounding box and, and taking all of those things off their mind so that they can focus on purely creating and playing in, in a way that they never could if they didn't have those bounding boxes to help them play in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that absolutely does make sense. And it, it's, it's almost like um, having creative constraints for the, for the play and the creativity, um, I guess. Is, for is sure. And look at it. If you look at an artist, right, and you said to an artist, hey, you've got nothing, I want you to go out and create, you know, an artist would really struggle to do that. But if you say to an artist, hey, here's a canvas and here's some paints, now create, mm. by bounding the solution box, it's not even bounding the solution box because that artist could also go and go, actually, I'm going to create with this clay, but by, by creating a strong bounding box by creating the football pitch by creating the rules by giving them the principles that take all of that stuff out of their mind you actually give them a vehicle with which to be the most creative they possibly can you know i'm mm. a far far better partner because the rest of my life is organized than i would be if i left the whole thing to chance and just mm. was like okay i'm just going to do whatever i can when i feel like it <laughs> yeah that that makes sense um and what what is it about um something else i wanted to touch on what is it about learning languages that fascinates you it seems like that has been a kind of consistent theme throughout your life and i'm wondering what is the kind of driving uh incentive for you for for learning obscure languages that you might not necessarily need uh on a day-to-day -day basis well so i would say um so i would say that the way that i learn languages is actually very pragmatic in that i you know i make a list of all of the languages in the world um and i basically worked out which ones were spoken there were two things that drove me the first is which ones are spoken by the most people and the second is i love um i think we reached a cultural zenith um at the end of the 19th century uh, at the start of the 20th century just before world war 1 where everyone read people were reading the, the philosophy the art the history the, um, not the history so much because that's always there but the philosophy and the art uh, all the arts were were flourishing and a lot of the cultures which were at their zenith then um you know they spoke english they spoke german they spoke russian um and also in in many senses if you look before the 19th century but it's less european focused towards countries like china you know there's these incredible um uh, cultural, these rich cultural tapestries that you can tap into when you speak a language. So that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I learned. I would say the, the major reason that I learned, though, is to speak to people. You cannot, um, 
you, it's so hard to explain a how magical it is to walk into a country. It's the closest thing I know to Harry Potter magic to walk into a country and understand nothing. And then three months later to walk into the same country and all the signs make sense. And you can understand the people talking on the side of the road and you can make things happen. Yeah. And, and also when you talk to people to talk to someone in their own native language, it's like mm. talking to an entirely different person. Yeah. You know, when I talk to a Chinese person or a German person and I make them speak English, the language they speak constrains their character. When I speak to them in their own language, I can mm. literally tell the difference between the two people who are talking to me. There's an English version of them and there's a German version of them, or there's a Mandarin or a French version of them. And that's, an, that's a fascinating thing. And it's incredibly addictive. Mm. I love that. And do, do you feel like that also applies to yourself? Do you feel like certain languages give you the capacity to express different parts of your own character or psyche? I would say that I, uh, I'm probably not at the level yet where I can, uh, so English is, I'm by far my best language and I'm not at the level yet where I could competently compare myself. Cause I'm, I, I may be French a little bit cause I'm a native French speaker, but, um, but even then I didn't study at a university level. So it's very hard for me to say, to compare apples and apples. It's really apples and oranges, but definitely I can see that, for example, people I speak to who are native English and native German speakers, they will say, oh yeah, um, English is much better for writing dialogue, but German is much better for writing descriptions of things. Um, mm. You know, because every language is effectively uh, like a Lego brick, right? And everyone has slightly different shaped Lego bricks and every Lego brick is... Um, is better for building different kinds of structures. And so when you, when you, I mean, any Chinese book that you pick up will be instantly like 30, 30% fewer pages, A, because the words take up less space, but also because Chinese is so much more direct in the way that it conveys things. Um, mm. German has this incredible way of combining words together to build whole new words or ideas. You know, that's why we have so many German words in our, in our own language, like Zeitgeist, because you know, that it was a way to create something. It was a poetic way to express something new that we couldn't by creating a single word in English. Um, whereas English just has the breadth of words and, you know, French has mm. the beauty. If you want to say something or combine or, or portray something beautiful, then there's nothing like French to do it or possibly Italian. I don't speak Italian, but I've heard um, a similar thing about it. So, mm. so yeah, every language has its own, uh, its own strengths and weaknesses and actually influences the way that people think. I love that. And um, I mean, I, I think of a lot of my favorite poets wrote initially in German, like Rilke and, and Goethe. And mm. I wonder if there is something about the, the way that the, the words are structured, which allows for that greater degree of creativity. Um, that's, that's really, that's so interesting. And, and I also feel like there's, there's something about um, maybe having access to a greater range of vocabulary that mm -hmm. allows us to describe our experience or, or, or perhaps it, it's almost like a lens through which we view our experience that mm -hmm. we're not aware that we don't have um so so there's a there's a friend of mine who did this project on untranslatable words and there's there's like mm -hmm. a word in um i think it's in danish that basically means like work love and it's this yeah. word that is fairly commonly used for like loving your work and i can imagine that say you know, us yeah. in england not having that word like how does that affect the way that we, the way that we experience life. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think one of the most beautiful things about language, but also any author you read or a poet specifically is when they're able to put into words, a feeling that you've never yet been able to convey effectively. Right. It's yeah. like simple, you read a lot. I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. You know, it sounds contrived now, but the first person who, who came up with the idea of butterflies in your stomach, you know, people had felt that forever. And then suddenly they were like, wow, that is what it feels like. That's yeah, perfect. Um, and you know, I think when you have a 
convenient words or convenient ways to refer to those things. And if you don't have a convenient way to refer to it, you create friction. Maybe you don't talk about it, right? So, um, so I think having a language which allows you to express concepts as granularly as possible increases your ability to talk about them intelligently, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so switching gears slightly. Um, in prepping for this conversation, I was reading a chapter of your your new book, Stop Working Harder. And yeah. this chapter focuses on procrastination. And I'd like yeah. to dig into this briefly because it's something that I've thought about a fair bit as well. So could you could you maybe walk walk us through how you think about procrastination and the four main causes that you've identified? Yeah, for sure. So I think um, procrastination is obviously something which affects all of us. It affects me every day. It doesn't matter how productive uh, you feel you become, you always attempted to procrastinate. Um, not, and, and I think I'll come to the causes. You could believe in everything that you're doing. Some days you just have a bad night's sleep or you wake up or you're, you know, you're not drinking enough water, whatever it may be. Um, I think the main problem that people have when they try and uh, address procrastination or the main problem that a lot of authors have when they talk about procrastination is they jump straight to the how. You know, people are like, how do I beat procrastination? Mm-hmm. And that's a bit like saying, I feel sick. How do I beat it? Right. Hmm. Imagine hmm. walking into a doctor's and, and you just go, I feel sick. And he's like, okay, well, here are 12 medications we can try. Just start trying them one at a time and see what <laughs> fixes it. You'd be like, that is literally insane. Don't you want to ask me anything about like what I'm doing? Right. Um, and so the, the step that I think is really important for people to ask is to get an understanding of why they procrastinate. So that's one level up. So once you understand why you procrastinate, then you can suddenly become much more intelligent about uh, what what uh, interventions you take to beat procrastination. But there's also one level before that, because for a lot of people, we don't realize we're procrastinating until we're like an hour into our Netflix hole, um, or we've been watching YouTube for 45 minutes, or you know, it's maybe sometimes it's been weeks or days that we haven't taken action on what it is we're doing. And when you're in the middle of procrastinating, when you've kicked off a new behavioral cycle, you know, once you've watched one episode of Netflix, it's much harder to escape Netflix than it would be to, if you never went into Netflix in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that I teach people, um, the very first layer is to understand when you procrastinate. And it sounds weird um, at first, but one of the most powerful things you can ever do is sit down right now and make a list of all the things you know you do when you're procrastinating. Everyone's list is slightly different. You know, they might uh, browse shopping websites online. They might browse social media. They might jump on WhatsApp. They might uh, go for a walk. Some people do really constructive things. You know, they go to the gym. Um, There's that old thing at university where you either put on uh, 30 kilos during your exams because you eat all the time to procrastinate or you put on 30 kilos during exams because you do nothing but go to the gym (laughs) to procrastinate, right? right? Um, so the first thing to do is write a list of when the second thing, once you understand when you can pick up, you can basically, before your brain even realize that you can start to pick up on telltale signs. It's like a canary in the mines, right? Where the the miners would bring the canary down to see if poison gas had escaped because it would detect it before they, they would usually by dying or passing out. But these become your canary signals. And so when you're tempted to watch Netflix, then you can ask yourself a question. You go, am I watching Netflix because I have nothing else to do? Which is always fine, right? Time intentionally wasted is never wasted time. Or are you watching Netflix because you're, you're not, you're, you don't want to work on something else? When you know that you are procrastinating, that's when you go back to that why question. You go, why am I procrastinating? And I think of four major reasons that we, don't, we procrastinate. The first is um, lack of clarity. They might be slightly in a different order. But the first is lack of clarity. The second is lack of courage. The third is lack of motive. 
And the fourth is lack of energy. So lack of clarity is not knowing what to do next. And I mean, specifically not knowing exactly the next action that you need to take, um, or you've got a ton of things in your head and you need to get them out, uh, out of your head. But it's a, it's a lack of being clear on what to do now. Lack of courage is knowing what to do now, but being afraid of what will happen if you take action. You know what, and and also not necessarily of the consequences, but what if you fail? Often it's a fear of failure, right? Lack of uh, motive is um, having to do something, but not really understanding or caring why you have to do it, um, which happens a lot to us earlier on in our lives when people tell us what we need to do. You have to work on this project. You have to study for these exams. Mm-hmm. Um, and lack of energy is one that we often underestimate. It's when you know we know what to do. We feel good about it. Um, you know, We're not afraid of what's going to happen, but the size of the problem is just much bigger than the size of us right now. If you imagine yourself as a, a human being that can scale from like one foot to 10 foot, you know, 10 foot is when you're at your best, you're full of energy. A six foot problem is easy to get over, right? But if you're at the one foot level because you're tired and, you know, uh, upset and emotional or, or whatever it might be, and or you're fatigued, then suddenly you're at a one foot and that six foot wall is infinitely more difficult to get over than when you're at the 10 foot, 10 foot level. And once you understand mm. that, once you understand the when and the why, the how actually becomes kind of easy. Um, you know, if you know that, if you understand that you're, if you know you're procrastinating and you know you're doing it because you're, you're, you're tired, the obvious answer is to either do something different, which requires less energy or to have a quick nap or to sleep, to work on your sleep schedule and so on and so forth. Mm. That's really interesting. And, and I guess it comes down to like defining the problem more specifically. And something sure. that comes to mind for me is that it seems like mindfulness and meditation can, like when, when framed uh, in this way, could be a very powerful tool for tackling procrastination because you could kind yeah. of be onto yourself faster um, when you're kind of watching that second Netflix episode and just be more aware of when these tendencies are surfacing. Um, is, yeah. is that something, do you, do you make that connection between meditation practice and procrastination? I mean, listen, meditation is, is, uh, is to mindfulness what uh, training in the gym is to playing football. You know, if you, it, it's, it's not necessarily direct. I think if you, if you become, the moment you write these things down, you cannot help but become more mindful with them. If you're someone who practices, practices meditation more often, you're simply going to be more mindful on a more regular basis. So instead of checking in with yourself every two hours, you're going to check in with yourself every five minutes or 10 minutes. And so you're more likely, instead of finding yourself in the middle of the, the procrastination storm, to see it from further away and therefore to to have a better or a, a quicker answer to this when question and and be aware there are also things you know there are, it's not necessarily just things you do it's ways that you feel it's emotions you feel it could even be a, a feeling in your body for example i know that i'm anxious when i feel a tightness in my throat or my chest and because mm-hmm. i know that that I put on my uh, my canary list. And so when I feel that, and I'm tempted to do one of the things that I know is a procrastination uh, trigger or like a, a symptom, then uh, then that's a very clear signal to me that I'm procrastinating on something. But yeah, I think meditation is super, if you can, if you do it regularly and you're a mindful person, you would find that even more powerful than um, than otherwise. Mm. That that point around the feeling the tightness in your throat is, is really interesting. And it, I think it kind of speaks to, the importance of increasing our somatic awareness. And yeah. um, there was there's something that I, I thought about when I was reading this, and it's that I, f- I feel like we have these, these subconscious belief patterns that surface in the form of procrastination in order to kind of keep us safe. So for example, if we, if we hold on to, to this belief that deep down we're afraid of feeling seen, then we'll kind of subconsciously do everything we possibly can to avoid being seen in public. So we'll probably procrastinate on on writing or we won't 
um, we won't publish things that we've written. Do you, sure. would, you, would you say, well, does that resonate with you? And do you, would you say that would kind of fall into the lack of courage section, um, kind of being aware 100%. of these sub, subconscious patterns? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a hundred, but I would say that, um, I would say that if you're afraid of taking action on any, on anything, that it's definitely a lack of courage thing. And that, and that, I think as you get increasingly self-aware, the level at which you're able to engage with that lack of courage, um, option and your ability to see that that's actually what it is that's drawing you back gets better and better. So most of us are aware of a fear of failure. You know, all of us are aware of what that feels like, but exactly what you've said before, understanding why we're afraid of failing, what it is inside us or spotting the physical symptoms of that fear and that resistance. Those are things that you get better and better at. And right. so you're, so the, the, the model will work for anyone. You know, you could, you could be super new to this and you could follow the steps that I've just laid out and it will work. It will work for you. The more mindful, it will also help you become more self-aware, but the more mindful and self-aware you become, the more, um, it's like any tool, the better you will become at wielding those three steps that we've just discussed. Yeah, completely, completely. So I'm, uh, I'm curious, how did you first get into meditation? And, and I seem to recall a story where you mentioned that you led yourself through a kind of self-guided Vipassana meditation in, in your own home. So I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. That was later on. Um, I my first experience was I was watching. I used to watch TED videos over uh, dinner when I was working at McKinsey, and I stumbled on Andy Puddicombe's um, TED video. Uh, Andy Puddicombe founded Headspace, uh, which is a, a, the app that that first introduced me. And then I read a, a few books, including uh, Search Inside Yourself by Chad Meng Tan, who's a Google engineer. Um, and it was, I, they really resonated with me because they were, they were at the time I was just using it as a practical tool. You know, I was like, oh, wow, it's, it makes me feel less anxious. <laughs> and that's the only reason that I started meditating. Um, and then obviously, as you go along the meditation journey, um, you start to see the world. I, I became, I wouldn't say I became addicted. It wasn't like a, I did it straight away. You know, it was a struggle to keep the habit up especially initially, but over time it got more and more consistent. And I think once you're on a meditation streak and then you stop meditating, that's when you suddenly realize what a beneficial impact meditation was having in your life. So mm -hmm. after a few four starts, I got, um, this is probably seven, eight years ago. Um, I started meditating more and more. And then when I was traveling, I was doing an hour a day. And then just before I met my partner, Aaron, I, I spent, uh, I wanted to do a Vipassana retreat, which is a 10 day silent retreat. Um, but there were, I was in Colombia and there weren't any going on nearby. Um, and so I uh, just bought a whole load of food, put myself in my apartment and spent seven days meditating 10 hours a day um, just by myself, uh, not talking to anyone. And that was probably the most intense uh, meditation that I've done. At any point, yeah. What did you, like, how was that experience for you? What did you get from it? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was amazing. The main thing that I took away from it is um, when you meditate for 20 minutes, it's a great way to check in with yourself. You know, you can see how am I feeling right now? Uh, what's going on in my body? It's a great way to recenter. But I think what I didn't see very often um, was I didn't experience that sense of transition, that ability to see an emotion. You don't sit for long enough to see an emotion rise and then fall away. Mm -hmm. And on the fourth or fifth day, I remember sitting down for a two hour meditation slot. And I don't know what happened, but it was like something unraveled inside me. And all of these awful things, I say awful, you know, it's all relative. Like all of these times that I'd hurt other people suddenly started to play back in my mind. It was like a loop. And once one had kicked in, things that I hadn't remembered, things from when I was six, seven years old that I'd done to, you know, ways I teased kids at school. Again, 
super trivial stuff, but I felt horribly guilty. I remember watching this emotion of shame and guilt, this wave rise inside me and just mm. wanting more than anything to stop meditating, to put an end to it. I thought to myself, I'm just going to sit through this. Like I'm day four, I'm already pretty much in the zone. And it built to this, this apex and I was sweating. I, was, I felt so bad about myself. And then suddenly it just disappeared. Mm. It was like, it was like I saw this emotion and it built and then it went. And it was the first time that I'd ever for myself watched how an, you aren't, I wasn't my emotion, that the emotion would come and it too would pass away. Mm. And I remember having this euphoric moment at the time. I was like, wow, and this was the end of the meditation. I sat down at the next meditation, which was, I took a 30 minute break and the opposite happened. I was so euphoric at this insight. And I saw that you, that wave of euphoria. And in, in many ways, that wave of euphoria, I wanted to, I wanted to get up and write about it and, and mm. talk about it. I was like, no, I'm going to sit through it. And that was actually harder than the pain. It was right. harder to sit with, with wanting to yeah. get up and think more about it than it was to get away from it. And, and, then, and then the same thing happened. At about the hour and a half mark, that euphoria just dropped away into a place of, of emptiness is the wrong word for it, but just, you know, sort of, uh, peace, I guess. Mm. And so, uh, and so I saw what well, that for me, that was very powerful because I saw a, tra a, a total cycle of an emotion, both a negative and a positive one. And, and that was a very um, insightful moment for me to see that that was actually a thing rather than just doing 20 minute meditation slots or even hour long meditation slots. Mm. Wow. And it, it's so like, you can read books on meditation and read about um, you know, the transients of thoughts and emotions, but until you really experience something like that, I, I think it doesn't quite sink in on a, in, sure. in such a, in such a deep way. And I, um, I was reading, uh, somewhere in your blog that you have an accountability thread and that one of the things you were aiming for was, uh, 105 mindful moments mm. and 10 meta moments uh, during your mom's mm. birthday and date night with, with your partner. Uh, Not so I'd love thing. to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just clarifying for listeners. <laughs> so, um, what are what, what are these mindful and meta moments to you, and um, why do they matter enough to be part of your your weekly goals? Hundred percent. I think when I started meditation, um, I I so I, I talked a bit about earlier about uh, meditation being to mindfulness what going to the gym is to um, playing soccer, right, or playing a sport. Um, I think when I started out, I was just meditating and, and I felt like things were going well. I was able to focus more. And then during the day, I would be surprised that I seemed to still be reacting in the same way to the things that were coming up. So I was becoming, my meditation was improving, but my mindfulness wasn't necessarily keeping pace. So that's the moment when I really realized there was a difference between meditation and mindfulness. Mm. And so what I was trying, what's, what I think is the hardest thing to do is how do you bring the equanimity or the, how do you create the, the gap between stimulus and response, as Stephen Covey says, in your everyday life in the same way that you can create it when you're meditating. And so what I created was this system. It's not, I didn't create it. It's just, I, I set myself a little goal. I was like, uh, you, you know, a lot of meditation teachers about it. They say, um, try and find a moment in a transition moment when you're going from standing to sitting or sitting to standing or changing activity where you stop and you take even one second or three seconds or five seconds or half a second to come back to that place that you find when you're meditating. And that's mm -hmm. what a mindful moment is for me. It's this idea of sitting and stopping and reminding myself to come back to bring what I have in meditation into my day-to-day -day life. Um, and a meta moment is a similar 
uh, thing. It's a moment of mindfulness, but instead of just a moment of self-awareness, it's a moment of projection. It's how do I project this sense of loving kindness out onto someone uh, who's either nearby or someone I'm with, you know, this idea of, you know, I would love to be able to get to a point where I can uh, consciously, before I speak to anyone I meet in a day, think to myself, how do I make this person's day better than it was before they saw me? You know, and, and it's so easy to forget that when you're in the rush of the day, it's so yeah. easy to, it seems so easy to do, but it's so easy to forget. And so that's the kind of meta side of it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I seem to remember we we went for dinner, dinner at one point in Bali and you were wearing these like, um, these, these hair ties around your wrist and yeah. Yeah, yeah. they were connected to this as well, right? Could you briefly describe that to you? For sure. Yeah. So I, 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 it's not because I wanted to track. Well, actually, it was because I wanted to track it. So I, I wanted to make it more systematic. And I wanted to, to be able to see, am I actually becoming more mindful as I go along? And I tried a whole lot of different ways to track it. I tried apps. I tried uh, complicated bracelets where you can move beads along. And what I uh, happened on at the end was just simple black hair ties. Um, you know, very, you can buy them from Zara or H&M. They're super cheap. And all I do is every time I have a, uh, a moment, a mindful moment, a meta moment, I switch it from one hand to the other. And over the, and I usually just wear five and then I just track in multiples of five. I've, I've had five, 10, 15, 20. Um, and it does several things. Firstly, at the beginning of each day, I'm setting an intention to be mindful. Um, and then I'm also, that's the first thing it does by setting the goal. The second is whenever I see them on my wrist, I'm reminded to take a mindful moment. Um, and the third is by tracking uh, one of the things I do in the Traction Planner, which is um, uh, uh, the Art of Living's uh, productivity planner. I, uh, I track the number of mindful moments that I have during the day, not because uh, I'm not tied to the goal of 40, but what it does, is it helps me actually give me a barometer of how mindful I was during the day. So I can look at a day and be like, wow, I only took five mindful moments today. Like, can I link that? Are there any insights from the way that I acted or the mistakes that I made to the fact that I wasn't so mindful? Some days I have 40, you know, 40 mindful moments and it's an amazing day. And I can then, that inspires me to keep trying to build that mindfulness practice into my life. The good thing about hair ties is you don't have to take them off when you shower. You don't have to take them off for sports. You don't, so you never lose track. You can, uh, you can always be on top of what's going on. Mm, I love it. That's it's great. And that's so much more fun than like using an app on a phone or just, just having a reason for it to be analog. I think that's so much more powerful. Uh, yeah. And there's something very visceral. Like it's a really lovely moment as well to just move something. You can move it from hand to hand mindfully as well. You know, if you have an app, it's five clicks to get into it. Then you don't have your mm -hmm. phone with you. Then, you know, you're like, oh, well, I didn't have my phone for four hours. So you don't bother tracking it. You know, it's kind of a bulletproof, simple system mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that anyone can use. It's super, yeah. super affordable. And you don't get sucked into scrolling on Instagram. Two yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you open your phone, you don't see all the notifications. And yeah, exactly. Amazing. So um, I, well, I, I was really impressed at how many book reviews you've managed to put together on your blog. And I, and I love that, that library. And I, I feel like for me personally, I sometimes feel like I will read a book and then a few months later, you know, have trouble really articulating what it was that I got from it and yeah. um, really describing it. And so I, I'm curious, how do, you, how do you decide which books to read next? especially if you're kind of committed to doing these, these summaries, which as you said, can sometimes take up to a few days. And yeah. are you noticing any themes in the books that you're attracted to um, lately? Yeah. So, so I, like you said, I spend a lot of time writing book summaries. I mean, I often invest anything from uh, three to 10 to, we just talked about um, uh, the body keeps the score, which I'm pretty sure is going to take me a few weeks to summarize. Um, mm. The reason I, I summarize them is because I feel that there's no, when you break a book down, what I don't do, which is what I see a lot of, is I don't just repost quotes from the book. 
you know, in a different way. What I try and do is I, tr I, I noticed at university that the only topics I really understood were the ones I wrote essays on. And so I try and break the whole book down and repeat it in my own words as if I was teaching it to someone else. And often I won't even use the author's structure. I'll use a structure that I think is more appropriate. So that's why I write the book summaries. Which books do I, uh, how do I decide what to read next? So I, I also give a lot of book recommendations on the blog um, because uh, it's important to read well um, as well as to read widely. Um, so I spend a lot of time creating uh, curated uh, book lists of what are the best books on any topic. And I think I have 10 or 15 topics now, best books on productivity, best books on emotional intelligence, best books on uh, learning, best books on sales, um, whatever it may be. And so I put a lot of time also into making sure that I'm only summarizing. If uh, You can never be sure it's the best book, but as heuristically as possible that I'm summarizing some of the best books written on any topic um, at any one time. Um, do I think there are themes between them? Um, yeah, 100%. So for example, especially if you, let's just take the productivity niche as an example. Um, if you read something like Brian Tracy or Stephen Covey, um, these books are so dense and so rich and filled with so many ideas that honestly, if I had to pick two or three books to live by, I could live by two or three of those books. Then what you tend to find is you find a second class of books where they've just picked one of those topics and basically turned a blog post into a book, you know, um, where you're like, okay, you didn't really need to do this. So you see a lot of ideas repeated within certain spaces, um, because people are either just expanding on an idea or because they're linking ideas between authors. Um, but you'll see a lot of um, common themes. The important thing though, is when you find a, the best books are the ones that help you to see the world in an entirely different way, where they, sometimes it's, it's not mm. about reinventing the problem. Sometimes it's about seeing the problem from a new angle and that's all that you need to do. You know, if you look at a statue from one angle, you might as well be looking at a painting. But if you look at the same statue from three different angles, suddenly you understand what the statue looks like and how it, how it moves in 3D space. You get It's the same thing that you're looking at, but in three different ways that all get you to see it in a slightly different way. So, hmm. I love that. I, I had a similar thought the other day. Um, I, was, I was thinking about kind of what counts as a, as a, timeless, a, a timeless idea or a timeless book. And I'd finished reading James Carter's Finite and Infinite Games and I felt like mm. that gave me a new lens through which to view my world mm. and, and my experience. And so it was timeless because I could always apply that lens to whatever the current situation was. And I think you're right that the books, the, the great books and the great ideas are like these lenses that we can see the world through. Yeah, a hundred percent. Ryan Holiday wrote this great book, Perennial Seller, which um, I love where he talks about what makes a seller perennial. So something when I'm making my book uh, recommendation list, I take three factors into, I use, uh, I, I tear the data out of Goodreads and I use three factors to decide what books get ranked. The first is uh, how well rated is it? So from zero to five stars, um, what's the rating level? The second is how many people have read it? You know, how popular is this book? Because sometimes books with millions and millions of ratings might score a 3.8 because they tend to be controversial. So I don't want to penalize books just because um, they're controversial, right? But the most important, I think, by far is how old is the book? What is the publication date of a book? If you find a book that is well-rated, widely rated, and has survived 100 years, you're probably onto a winner. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So we are um, we're approaching time. I'd love to wrap up with a few rapid fire questions, um, yep, and then we'll, we'll we'll open up for the the Q and A at the end as well. So, cool. first rapid fire question: uh, Which book would you say that you've reread the most? 
Uh, I would say Getting Things Done by David Allen is probably the book that I've reread the most times. Um, yeah, I would say Getting Things Done by David Allen. Okay. What is something that you've changed your mind on in the past year or two? Um, having children. So uh, so we are pregnant. Erin uh, is uh, 18 weeks pregnant, which is incredibly exciting. Um, and that was a, it wasn't that I didn't want children. It's that I didn't necessarily have a, I, as part of my breaking down of all the things I wanted, I looked at all the reasons that I thought I wanted children when I was 22. And I, I realized that all of them were terrible reasons <laughs> for wanting children. And I'd never replaced that with a good reason to want children. Um, mm until two things happened. Firstly, I met Erin, um, you know, and she is my partner and my teammate. And, you know, I want to build a life with her and, and do everything that I can to, to make her happy and to build an amazing family with her. And the second was actually starting the art of living. I always used to think of my self-development as zero sum with teaching other people and helping other people. You know, every hour that I was mm. spending helping others was an hour I wasn't spending uh, answering questions that I was interested in. And then actually what I've learned from uh, coaching over the last few years has been that helping other people is far, has become far, far more powerful and more interesting to me um, and also more instructive to me than simply pursuing my own growth for the sake of my own growth. Um, and so I think the idea of, uh, of going through that process of raising a child and, and giving them the best opportunity they can to, to live an amazing life and to do amazing things in the world and to do that with someone you love and who you want as your team member is something that I'm incredibly excited for. So that would be the big one that's changed in the last two years. Mm, beautiful. Which person has had the greatest influence on your life? L living or uh, dead? <laughs> I don't want to sound like a uh, broken uh, record on this. Um, it, and it's not like, a, I'm not, it's not, this is no pity call, but probably my father um, had the biggest impact on me. Um, you know, for me, he was a man who, who had everything going for him in life, who could have done amazing things for himself. And I watched him destroy himself. And for initially I was angry at him and then I understood. And then I felt sorry for him that he clearly didn't have the tools that everyone should have to deal with whatever problems he was going through. But, but seeing that from a very young age um, got me to ask questions about why people do what they do. You know, why wasn't, why wasn't he able to, to save himself from what he was going through? Um, and it, it, you know, when I look back on my life, I think it influenced almost every decision that I've made from studying psychology, philosophy, and physiology at Oxford to, you know, working out the art of living to, um, to everything that I've done. So. Mm. If you had a year left to live, how might you spend it? I would be doing exactly what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and I think I sort of went through that, you know, I often ask people a thought question, uh, a similar, I ask them to, similar questions. I say, what if you, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow and you had $10 million in your bank account? These are questions that I love to ask people because you learn amazing things about them. I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday who runs this amazing graphic design business. And she was like, I'd start an animal sanctuary. And I was like, wow, I did not know that about you. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I went through all of that thinking when I was sort of 25 and this is what I would do. I would wake up every day and I would talk to awesome people like you and I would work with the wonderful people who read and, and subscribe to The Art of Living and I would spend time with my wonderful, beautiful fiance and enjoy the first uh, first three months of my, uh, hopefully my, my newborn child's life. And yeah, I would enjoy living in Bali and living the life that I lead now. Beautiful. 
beautiful. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to wrap up. Before we um, stop recording here, could you share a place that listeners can find out more about Traction Journal and, and your work and the, the new book that's come out? And what's the best place for them to find you online? For sure. I mean, I think uh, if you're interested specifically in the stuff we've talked about at this episode and, and this gets published on your podcast, Johnny, I guess your show notes would probably be the best place to look um, mm-hmm. on Curious Humans, podcast.curiouhumans.com um, because we'll do a little run. There's a lot of stuff on The Art of Living and this will be a sort of a mini index of all that stuff. But otherwise, um, to visit theartofliving.com um, and there are plenty of free tools and freebies. And if you send yourself one of those, I'll spend the first week uh, giving you basically a guided tour of the very best content that's on the site. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. Perfect. So I'd like to close with this uh, Rilke line and it's try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave listeners with? Oh, that's a really tricky one to spring on someone at the end of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess the question that I ask people to ask themselves on a regular basis um, and that I'm, I'm often trying to work out is, you know, what's the one most important thing I should be doing right now? you know, what's the one most important thing I should be doing right now? And that doesn't, people will go, oh, you know, that's, that's a productivity basis, but it, it's not about working on whatever assignment you've been given to. Maybe the most important thing for you to be doing right now is taking some time for you and going on holiday. Maybe it's to spend time with someone you love. Maybe it's to send a message to someone who you love and tell them how much you love them. Maybe it is to get on with that thing that you've been putting off, um, you know, that's your business career. But, um, if you can answer the question, what is the one uh, one most important thing I should be doing right now? It will take you down a whole load of journeys into how to do that thing, what that thing is, and why that thing is even important. Um, and that will lead to all the questions you need, I think, to answer some, some of the big questions in life. All right. Well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Arthur. Thank you, Johnny. It's such a pleasure. Great to see you. I get to hear your voice. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.